Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Hi, listeners. This is season five, episode 35. 35. We're like two thirds of the way through this, or three quarters of the way through this crazy, weird, strange year. Episode 35. And this is produced by Jesus Centered Resources. And I always say that's a thing that isn't a thing yet. <laughs> it's just the umbrella over which um, I'm, I, I'm working under. Uh, right now, just all the things I'm doing, the writing, the speaking, all the other stuff. So my name is Rick. I'm author of, uh, I think the last time I counted in the last decade, I've written eight books or nine books. It's crazy. And I'm, I'm trying to finish one right now and send it off to the publisher. It's called The Suicide Solution. And it is a book co-written with Dr. Daniel Amina of the Amen Clinics on Jesus and the suicide issue in our culture. And it has been an epic journey writing this book with Daniel. I have learned so much and this, this issue is, is I'm quite passionate about. I live in a hot spot for suicide in the United States and my two girls have been impacted by people in their schools who have taken their own lives and I've been disappointed about the reaction to, to this issue in our culture, and I've been um, trying to get at this from a Jesus lens for a few years, and now I'm near the end of writing this book. So you'll hear more about the suicide solution next, come coming out next year, um, in the months to come. But uh, in a few days, the Jesus Center Daily gets released. My daily devotional, two years of my life, my little bouncing baby. <laughs> uh, those of you who joined the launch team in advance of its release to the public, uh, you already have your copies. And I've already been hearing back from many of you. And thank you so much for your feedback. And next week is Go Week, uh, Tuesday, October 6th, is the day that the, uh, the Jesus Center Daily launches. Just a shout out to those of you on the launch team, and there's lots of you. Uh, please, please post your review on Amazon on that Tuesday uh, or shortly thereafter. That's, that's what we'll get. Amazon's algorithms um, uh, churning away and giving it attention so that more people uh, know about the book and find it. So if you would like a sampler of the Jesus Center Daily, a 10-day sampler, just go to the website I built by my lonesome, uh, jesuscenteredaily.com, and you'll see a button there uh, if you scroll down to get a free sampler. You can also order the book right there, and you can also watch my amateurish video. Um, which was, I, I just have to say, it was intentionally amateurish. That was my genius, brilliant ideas to make an amateurish video. So you can watch it yourself and see if it was up to amateurish standards. So there you have it. Well, gang, this is the first episode, the first one in a series that I'm calling Present Concerns. We'll be exploring the issues and challenges that make up the wallpaper of our life today, this very day and then connecting them directly back to how Jesus dealt with similar issues in his time. And today, to kick this thing off, we're going to explore a charged word, division. 
division. <laughs> I, I know you know what I mean as soon as I say it. <laughs> We're coming out on the heels now of just the news that uh, uh, President Donald Trump and Melania have both tested positive for COVID-19. So this is a new round now of back and forths about what this means and uh, angry pronouncements and <laughs> all kinds of things. It's just round 784 of this knockout fight called division in our culture today. It's probably the word that best defines this last year as our COVID restrictions and our fears and uh, our racial unrest and the protests that have come with it and political extremism have just churned us up emotionally and spiritually and divided us in a way that uh, I've never seen in my lifetime. So appropriately joining me for this really tough series of present concerns will be none other than the Becky Nader. So for new listeners, her real name is Becky Harrington, but her true name is the Becky Nader. And I've been calling to that for like five years now, something like that, um, after I first met her actually, because I could tell right away there was something different about Becky. <laughs> So Becky, maybe you could reintroduce yourself and maybe tell everyone the scandalous story behind the name, the Becky Nader. Well, it's funny. Now, most of my clients also call me the Becky Nader um, because <laughs> they've experienced um, what happens when Becky works with you on a project, which is, I just kind of innately get a lot of stuff done and I move things forward um, and it just creates momentum, which is where that that title that Rick gave me came from. Um, and, you know, I have been involved with this podcast since the very beginning. Um, with Rick, we did a few solid years of just consistent um, episodes together and built this relationship through the podcasting world. I've been um, on my own. I'm, for those of you who have listened for a long time, I'm now married again, and you may not know that. I'm Woo. a stepmother <laughs> to a 12-year-old, nearly 13-year-old, and um, own a marketing firm and also doing podcast consulting. And just my life uh, changed so radically that it was harder for me to juggle all of the things well. And so took a big step back from this podcast for a really long time, but just always a wonderful thing to be back here. And um, I know so many of you, I can't believe that it's gonna be nearly six years. Um, I just had my birthday a few months ago and so many of you sent me birthday messages and just you know continued support of my life and have followed my journey for, for so many years. And you just feel like a big part of who I am. Yeah, you know, it feels like, I just wrote this to somebody the other day, feels like we're in, when we're in the moment, time feels like a huge boulder that's just slow moving. But actually, when you look back in retrospect, it feels like it's, it's rolling down this steep hill, just hurtling down. And I think about five years, Becky, five years, think about what has happened in five years' time. It's staggering. And we even think about this one year it feels like 10 years ago that I was watching John Krasinski and Some Good News online. Doesn't it feel like forever ago that that little show was on for a while? <laughs> but it was only like four months ago that that show was on. So uh, we've been through a lot in, in this last year. And I thought it'd be interesting for us to start off this whole focus on division with a few stats that sort of tell the story um, and then we can share a little bit about our own experiences 
dealing with tension of division during this time. So here's a few things to think about. Eight out of 10 people say that the US is mainly or totally divided, eight out of 10. And here's the kicker, that stat is from two years ago. <laughs> it's probably higher right now. I'd say probably 10 out of 10 people say that the US is mainly or totally divided. You, uh, we're gonna be listening to Arthur Brooks in just a little bit, an amazing uh, Harvard professor who's also a follower of Jesus. And he's gonna talk about uh, this sense that in our culture that we're deeply divided and compare that to other deeply divided cultures around, around the world and in history. And it's gonna be shocking to hear what he has to say. So, um, so eight out of 10 people say we're mainly a totally divided. Um, here's a second snippet. Uh, a recent Pew Research report found that almost half of Americans, half of Americans don't have a single friend who identifies with the quote unquote other political party. Half of Americans don't have a single friend that is outside of their bubble. And then almost a third of Americans report that divisiveness has affected them personally. And they cite depression and anxiety and sadness as examples of that. A third of us say that this, this divisive place that we're in has profoundly impacted um, us and we feel depressed, anxious, and sad as a result of it. So, Becky, what's your reaction to these stats when I roll them off here? And what's your personal experience with divisiveness? I think um, it's not surprising. And if you're someone who kind of regularly consumes any level of social media, you've been seeing it kind of rapidly speed in this direction. I'm not one of those third of people in America who personally doesn't have someone um, in the other uh, party, I guess it's, it's half. 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 Okay. I'm not in that category. Um, and, but it has been really interesting because people feel really comfortable just being themselves with me. I know many times that I've been in groups where someone has been very vocal about their opinion and thought to myself, this person thinks that they're surrounded with people who agree with them, but I know that they don't, <laughs> that they're not surrounded. And so I think even sometimes maybe we assume that everyone else around us agrees with the things that we're saying, but that's not always true. There's a lot of people who feel th that they have to be silent or they won't have friends. And that is another really concerning thing for me, particularly is that we live in the land of the free. We have the freedom because it's been paid for, bought and paid for for us to speak our mind. And yet we're in a culture where we actually aren't doing that. Um, and I think that there's the loudest people in the room think that they're the ones um, that everyone agrees with. But I see a lot of, because I know intrinsically um, the people around me and they feel comfortable being themselves, um, I'm actually more concerned about how many people feel like they have to be silent in order to not lose the friendships and relationships that they have. Yeah. And yeah, that it's, I, I think it's come to that actually. It's, it's, it's very difficult for us to reach across this division. It started out as, uh, you know, a little fissure and now it's the Grand Canyon in our relationships. And this divisiveness, uh, it's interesting. I mentioned I'm writing this book, The Suicide Solution with Dr. Daniel Amina. He's a 
He's the sort of the uh, right-hand guy to Dr. Daniel Amen of the Amen Clinics. And Daniel said something about the, the COVID virus itself that really struck me. He said, the virus itself has fingerprints of Satan on it. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, because some people, when they get it, die from it. And some people don't even have symptoms. It automatically leaves open this gap that creates division in and of itself. And he said, and whose personality is most marked by using division as a way to destroy? He said, it's, it's got Satan all over it, just the virus itself. So it's, it's interesting to think about that what we're grappling with right now is satanic at its core. And you can tell that it is by the fruits that it's produced in our, in our culture. So in, in my life, uh, longtime listeners know that I lead a, uh, a group of young adults every Tuesday night, right now in our backyard, socially distanced, um, but it used to be in our home. <laughs> and one day it will be again, but we're about to move down into our basement, our retrofitted basement as the weather gets colder with a bunch of recirculating air and air purifiers and all kinds of stuff down there to, in order to make this possible for us. But that group is made up of young people that come from families that are on either side of this divide. And we have worked very hard to co continue to make this a safe space for all of them. But I'm remembering one night in particular where we were focused on Jesus's relationship with racism. And there was a portion of the night where we were talking about what is your personal connection to racism in your past? And there were two little clumps each, uh, all, the, all the young people in each of the clumps are six feet apart sitting in hula hoops, but there were two clumps that were next to each other. And in one of those, uh, a young man said he has had no, zero uh, uh, connection with or brush with racism of any kind in his entire life. And he's a 17 year old. Right next to that clump was one that had a, uh, uh, a young man of Asian descent, and he had just had a disturbing and, uh, and traumatic experience of racism when he uh, went to the wrong house to go pick up something. He was running an errand. He was supposed to pick up something from somebody's house, and he went to the wrong house, went to the wrong address, and so he was, he was parked in front of the house um, and trying to figure out where the right address was. And the owner of the house came out of the front door with a shotgun and, and pointed it at him and, and uh, basically said, because of the color of your skin, I'm suspicious of you. Um, this was, and so obviously that he tried to tell him he had made a mistake and he got out of there. But so he's sharing this story after the other young man had just shared a story of never having and had any brush with racism. And I could see the divide right there in front of me because our context is what tells us what reality is. And they were living two different realities. So I thought it'd be interesting for us to uh, take a look at this, uh, at this uh, Trinity Forum interview with Harvard Business and Kennedy School professor Arthur Brooks. He's, uh, he's, he's just come out with a, uh, a new book. It's so new, I have not read it yet, but I want to. It's called Love, Love Your Enemies. And Arthur Brooks is an interesting guy. He, he was invited by the conservative-leaning Trinity Forum, which is a, 
uh, sort of an intellectual slash academic thought leadership uh, uh, forum or, or gathering of leaders in the Christian community. They, they're Jesus lovers, um, but they're Jesus lovers that are coming at this from a deeply thoughtful point of view. So Arthur Brooks was invited by the Trinity Forum to, to lead this webinar called Redeeming a Culture of Contempt. And I, I really respect the Trinity Forum because they're, they're conservative theologically, but they're very broad-minded in their curiosity. They respect followers of Jesus who are thinking deeply about our present concerns, no matter what corner of the cultural la landscape they call home. So this new book, Love Your Enemies, is really based in the standard of love that Jesus first promoted in the Gospels. Um, and he's, Brooks is here speaking both to conservative and liberal audiences. He does this all the time. Um, and he, he brings this cutting edge behavioral research um, with him into these conversations along with his faith in Jesus. And his goal is to help people think about the practical ways we can choose to love those we disagree with or to will their best goods, will their best good, to be agents of redemption and reconciliation in a divisive time. And so Becky and I are going to listen to the opening 10 minutes. So are you, by the way. We're about to play it. <laughs> We're going to listen to about the opening 10 minutes of this uh, interview as a sort of a launching pad for our pursuit of Jesus. So Becky is hearing this for the first time, but we'll both be taking notes as we listen through. the. And, and if you're not driving right now, I want to take notes as well. I want you to be thinking about the lens of Jesus' heart. How, how do you sense and taste and hear and see the heart of Jesus in what Arthur Brooks is talking about. And the first voice you're gonna hear here is the voice of Sherry Harder. She is the president of the Trinity Forum. She's a former aide to uh, George Bush in the White House, but she's the president now of the Trinity Forum. And uh, listen as she sets the stage for this conversation. Here we go. If you're new to the work of the Trinity Forum, we seek to provide space and resources for leaders to grapple with the big questions of life in the context of faith and offer programs like this online conversation to do so in the hopes of gaining wisdom, but also, even more importantly, coming to better know the author of the answers. And certainly, one of the questions that seems to haunt so many of us as we survey and even lament uh, the angry and divisive nature of our public rhetoric, the vitriol that seems to characterize so much of our in-person, particularly online conversations, is how we get to this place. How did we, in the words of our guest today, increasingly come to view people who disagree with us, not merely as mistaken or incorrect, but as worthless? And how do we reweave compassion and care for others into a civic fabric corroded by contempt? Our guest today is an economist and a policy wonk, but he offers a way forward that's not primarily either political or economic, but both spiritual and highly practical. The antidote to our current ills, he suggests, can be found in ancient New Testament teaching, to love our neighbor and to even love our enemies. He borrows from the definition of love offered by St. Thomas Aquinas as willing the good of the other, Loving your enemies, he claims, does not mean capitulating to what he calls mushy moderation, but becoming, in his words, warriors for their point of view and healing for their community. 
It is an intriguing and deeply countercultural argument. And certainly there are few who can make it with the panache, persuasive power, passion, or the piles of data as our guest today, Arthur Brooks. Arthur is an economist who serves as a professor of leadership at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government, as well as a faculty member at the Harvard Business School. After a remarkable decade of service as the president and CEO of the American Enterprise Institute, one of the world's most influential think tanks. He is a columnist for The Atlantic, the host of the podcast, The Art of Happiness with Arthur Brooks, the recipient of six honorary degrees, a friend of the Dalai Lama, was named Fortune Magazine's uh, one of their 50 world's greatest leaders, and is the subject of the 2019 documentary film, The Pursuit, which Variety Magazine named as one of the best documentaries currently on Netflix. He is also the author of 11 best-selling books, including his excellent and most recent work, Love Your Enemies, How Decent People Can Save America from a Culture of Contempt, which we've invited him here today to discuss. So Arthur, welcome. Thank you, Cherie. Wonderful to be with you and to be with all of my friends from the Trinity Forum from all over the world. How wonderful to have such a big audience. This is, yeah, I knew that the coronavirus epidemic was a big opportunity truly to bring people together. Absolutely. Well, we're really glad to have you here. So I want to ask you, there's been a lot of talk lately about how angry our politics has become. Right. But one of the things you say in your book is that it's not actually anger that's the problem. It's contempt. So let's start by just asking you, what is contempt and what differs it from anger and why is it so corrosive? So people can see a lot of anger. If you turn in, if you tune in, if you dare, if you tune into uh, cable television and, and around prime time, you'll see people yelling at each other. And you can think of that as an angry or hostile reaction of one to the other. But that's actually not what we're talking about. Anger is a hot emotion. And it says, I care and I want you to do something differently. However, that fact that, that I care what you think and I want you to think differently or behave differently is not something that would draw people to hate each other or to drive people apart. There's actually a good literature on, the, uh, on marriage that shows that anger and divorce are uncorrelated, which is you know, fantastic. It's good news for a lot of people who are watching. Certainly for me, I've been married for 29 years to a Spaniard, and I can tell you that the secret to my happy marriage is the lack of correlation between anger and divorce. The problem with marriages and with, with you know, any you know, hostility between people that will turn into permanent rifts is when you take that primary negative emotion of anger and you mix it with another. Now, a little bit of brain science is in order, and I, I promise I won't go, you know, ruin our session by talking about this too much, but you know, the primary negative emotions are anger, sadness, fear, and disgust. These are processed in the limbic system of the brain. They're very ancient. They were evolved more than a million years ago before the prefrontal cortex. And, and one of the things that we know is that they, we use them in reaction to different things. Fear to, to survive, basically. Sadness is, is completely normal. Anger, as I said, is to express the idea that I want you to do something differently. Disgust is an emotion, is a primary negative emotion that we use in response to a pathogen. Now here's the problem. When we take anger, which is normal, and we mix in disgust, we get contempt. This is a, a complex negative emotion, and it's an amalgam of these two. Now, uh, 
philosophers refer to contempt as the conviction of the utter worthlessness of another person. I'm angry with you, and I'm disgusted by you, and therefore I think that you're worthless. When you express contempt for another person and treat them as if they were a pathogen, you will have a permanent enemy. And there's a lot of research that shows that when people are going to have implacable differences, hostile differences, even violent differences, almost always they don't come from anger, they come from this complex phenomenon called contempt. Well, that sort of begs the question of sort of how do we get there? Because it's one thing to be angry with someone, it's one thing to be afraid. But, you know, we are at a point where many Americans ascribe essentially murderous ideologies uh, to those with whom we disagree. Are there, are there certain practices or habits of mind that has kind of predisposed a mass turn from anger or disagreement to disgust? There, there, there is, and what ordinarily happens after, and, and this is just as a social science matter, after financial crises or those where there's a lot of competition between citizen and citizen for resources, you very frequently see populism and polarization crop up in politics, which is a very fear-based kind of politics. Fear-based politics uses the rhetoric of contempt, uses the rhetoric of disgust for one citizen toward another. And then it becomes kind of the vehicular language of how we start to talk in our political situations. Now, there's a very interesting body of literature that psychologists are involved in that explains hostility between groups of people. And it's called, it's, it's based on something called motive attribution asymmetry. And you know, this is what we academics do. You take a fairly simple concept and you put fancy words on it and then you get tenure. So, and, and that's kind of what this is. So motive attribution asymmetry is very simple. Two groups of people can't get along. They, they, it, this is based on a cognitive error on both sides that I am motivated by love, but you're motivated by hatred. And so there's nothing that we can talk about under any circumstances. That actually underlies most implacable hostility where, where groups simply can't understand each other and get along. And there's a lot of literature that shows that that's, it's in huge supply after things like the Rwandan genocide and the Balkans crisis, certainly in the Palestinian-Israeli crisis where both sides think they're motivated by love but the other side by hatred. But now for the first time we actually see this in American politics. As a matter of fact, there are three psychologists at Northwestern that have done work that show that that the level of motive attribution asymmetry between Democrats and Republicans in the United States is the same level as what we see between the Palestinians and Israelis in the Middle East. That is actually sort of the social science of contempt, and that's what's creating this witch's brew that we see in American politics today. It's based on an error. We don't understand each other. We don't mix. We treat each other as pathogens. And so therefore, your neighbor can be somebody who is your implacable foe. So is there a social science um, explanation or, or a different kind of explanation for what has so skewed our perceptions uh, that we have moved to viewing our, our neighbors, our colleagues, our, um, our work colleagues with the same kind of suspicion that would characterize a Mideastern blood feud? Yeah, so the, the, the theory behind this and, and, and most of the evidence suggests that it really does come from you know, the period after the, the financial crisis. So financial crises are very different than ordinary crises, economic crises, insofar as that there is no economist on the planet that can explain how to recover over the decade after a financial crisis, which typically happens every 50 years or so. 
where most of the gains when we're coming back from a financial crisis don't accrue outside the top 20% of the income distribution. So the inequality of the rewards in the, in the wake of a financial crisis, what it does is it, it creates a, a, almost a perfect environment for politicians and leaders and media to, to, to profit on the, on the narrative that somebody's got your stuff and I'm gonna get it back. A fear-based narrative that sets people up to hate the other. And so that's the political situation that we find ourselves in. And it's very typical. You see this in, at different times in American history in the late 1920s, for example, the, the turn of the 19th century when there was a, two parallel or, or, or sequential financial crises that led to the same kind of populism in American politics. This typically happens, but it's been accelerated by new trends in the way that we communicate with each other. So social media, for example, is it's gasoline on the fire. It's, it's the, you can create this bubble where you can talk to only people who agree with you, and you can talk about people with whom you disagree as the other, as opposed to ever hearing from them. We know in point of fact that when people get off social media and are exposed to their neighbors with whom they disagree, that their opinions soften, that they... It's not so hard to love your enemies when your enemy is right in front of you and your enemy's kid is playing with your kid, in point of fact. But if you can, if you can make sure that you're living in a place where there's nobody who disagrees with your politics and you're looking at Facebook where everybody you talk to says that the other side is stupid and evil, well, that will harden you into a, an environment of contempt. And that's a very combustible and dangerous situation in which we find ourselves today. All right, then. Arthur Brooks, the Harvard professor on the Trinity Forum. So uh, I can't uh, 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 recommend enough that you listen to the whole hour. You can, you can hear this by, by going to ttf.org. That stands for the Trinity Forum, ttf.org. And there's a place where you can click on uh, uh, past videos and events. Just click there and you'll find, you'll find this webinar which is, which is called Redeeming a Culture of Contempt. Listen to the whole thing. It gets even more fascinating the longer you listen to him and talks about a lot of his personal experiences um, talking in front of very extreme audiences one way or another and what he does when he's in the midst of these extreme audiences. It's, it's just fascinating. So you can also find a link to this whole webinar on our website, paying You'll just look for season five, episode 35. So Becky, um, what's something that just kind of stuck out to you in what Arthur Brooks just said? What's something that, that uh, you, you took a note about that you, you thought um, either uh, it made you think of something that Jesus stood for, what he modeled, or maybe something he challenged his followers and his enemies to embrace, or just something that really stuck out to you? So Part of the reason why I wanted to come on today and um, and join the podcast, particularly on this discussion, because you know, what a what a happy discussion to come back, <laughs> paying ridiculous attention to Jesus. It's been you know over a year since I've been on this show, but I particularly reached out to Rick because um, I can see so much division all around us, and it's it it, it is breaking my heart. Um, and one of the things that he said was that anger is our point of view. Anger is driven out of our point of view is different 
from the point of view that you have. And I really need you to hear and listen to my point of view. And that is actually where we're at right now. There are a lot of different kinds of points of view on everything right now, uh, whether it's about the coronavirus and how we're handling that, whether it's about the best way to go about healing discrimination and racism in our country, whether it's about how to handle our economic crisis or our um, crisis that's happening in um, just the ecology of our world, there, there's varying points of view. And there always has been. We, we specifically have two parties in this country because those two parties have different points of view on how we should govern and lead our country. What, where power should be put, how power should be used, all of these things, we, we actually, we, we created the system of our government because we, we were divided in the, in the way that we thought we should go about doing that. So we said, well, okay, we, we can have division and still work together. But the sneaky thing about anger, um, adding the word disgust, and I, I thought that was such a great way, is that when we start to have anger and we add disgust, disgust was saying that if you disagree with me, then I'm disgusted with you and I think that you are coming from a place of hate and I'm coming from a place of love. And so therefore we, we, we come to a place of division and contempt. And that, and that place of, of anger combined with disgust, he said, which I thought was brilliant, translates to you're worthless, meaning your, your made in the image of God identity is of no worth. Um, and this, is where it, this is where it becomes satanic. If you, if you think about this, um, what is Satan's end game? He wants to kill, steal, and destroy. This is, this is what we know from scripture. His mission is to kill, steal, and destroy. He does not hardly ever try to do this overtly because that doesn't really work. He is always trying to deceive his way into destroying. So if we can get into a place where our anger um, then adds disgust into it, and then we think of the other person as worthless, then we're right in that moment where Jesus is trying to challenge us saying, if you're, if you're uh, in the Beatitudes when he says, if you're thinking a thought or even voicing it to someone and basically saying, you're worthless, um, then you're guilty of murder. Look, you're guilty of murder when you do that. He was trying to up the ante for people, for the, for the relational uh, brutality that existed around him and this crossing over into, into contempt for each other. I thought that was really powerful. Is there anything else in there, uh, Becky, that you, that you wanted to point out? When he talked about how if we get off social media and we start to engage in our neighborhood and community, specifically with people who don't agree with us, one of the benefits of the way that my life has gone is that I have lived in a lot of different places. I have lived um, in Southern California. I have lived in Colorado. Um, I, I now live in Oregon. I did traveling through Idaho and through Washington and through Utah and lived different places. I also lived in a safe house for a while. I lived in... Um, I lived in uh, government-provided housing that was around a lot of people who were 
um, barely getting by um, because of either like capabilities, like physical or mental capabilities keeping them from it, or they just had pro other problems keeping them from moving forward. And I, I grew up crossing the border over, over into Mexico and living amongst those communities because that was something that my dad valued. I spent time going over to Romania and helping to heal a society that was coming out of communism. And so I've been around a lot of varying viewpoints and it's something that has, has really shaped my worldview. But the more people I meet who think very differently about the world, the, the less and less I think I really understand about what's right for our world. And it's given me more compassion and humility when it comes to being extremely for one side or for another. Um, and it's the reason why I've maintained my political affiliation is, is registered independent. And that has been a, a choice that I've made for a long time because I understand intrinsically that these are very complex issues that have varying sides. And sometimes I vote one way and sometimes I vote another. And um, the more that we decide to get outside of our circles and love our neighbors and sit in their space and see what their life is like, the less likely we are to have extreme hate and discontent from them. Yeah, and you know, I was thinking about that very thing when I first watched this entire webinar with Arthur Brooks, because one of the things he says later on is that how imperative it is for us to be physically present to with others who are coming from a different points of view. And that I had a kind of a critique in my head as he was talking because his whole life as a Harvard professor and as a speaker who's known for um, speaking in every kind of corner of the political room, um, uh, he, his whole lifestyle sort of uh, uh, creates a flow of this kind of interaction into his life. It's happening all the time. Well, that flow doesn't happen very naturally in almost anyone's life. We don't naturally have a flow of people who are diametrically opposed to our worldview coming into our sphere all the time, just flowing in like a river. He has that, and, and because of that, he's become quite good at, in, at loving his enemies because he's had plenty of experience trying to live out uh, following Jesus in those relationships. But mostly as human beings, because Jesus called us sheep, we avoid tense, hard encounters with people. Um, we don't want tension and heartbreak and pain and confusion and um, hard emotions as a regular part of our life. So we avoid the sources of those things, just naturally speaking. So, so um, being a proactive person who opens yourself to these viewpoints, these competing viewpoints, is important. But what we, we can't rely on our discipline for this to happen. We kind of have to put ourselves in the stream somehow. Like when I was talking about uh, the group that I lead every week, um, it's a happy accident that every week I have a group of uh, 20 young adults who are coming from vastly different points of view across the big Grand Canyon divide. Um, I love it that it comes to me, that uh, I'm hearing them express their worldview, and then I get to engage them about it in a way that I hope feels upending the same way Jesus upends in these situations. But it does take as you were saying, um, uh, Becky, the, a humility and a, a willingness to, to uh, feel pain, uh, um, to enter into another person's point of view.
The last thing I want to throw out there about what I heard uh, Arthur Brooks say is I just want to go back to this whole uh, thing that he points out at the end, this inequality of rewards. He's saying that uh, this current division has come out of our financial crisis and a financial crisis that in the recovery has helped the top 20% of our culture, but not the bottom 80%. And he said, that's a, a, a setup, a perfect environment, uh, a perfect environment to, to create this narrative of division because it it's fear-based. And go back to uh, what I said about Daniel Amina and his perspective on the COVID virus. It's the same thing. When you have an inequity in the way something impacts uh, the entire culture, it creates this uh, prime greenhouse environment for division. And that's what COVID has done. So, so um, let's now transition into um, a few stories, a uh, few encounters that Jesus had. And, I, and Becky and I are going to kind of dive into these and pick out uh, what we see in Jesus. How is he interacting and reacting in these three different situations relative to division, to what, what expectations uh, the culture has about how you relate to people who are supposed to be your enemies? Um, let's, let's take a closer look. Let's pay some ridiculous attention to Jesus in these three different encounters. So we're going to dive into them, and Becky and I will try to retrieve the pearls we find in each one of them. We're looking here again, and I want you to think about this too as you're listening. We're looking for how Jesus pursued the other's best good in each encounter. How did he pursue the other's best good in each encounter? So the first one is Jesus and Zacchaeus. Here we go. This is from, uh, this is from Luke chapter 19, verse, verses 1 through 10. So if you're not driving and you want to flip open your Jesus-centered Bible to Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10, go ahead and flip over there, and here we go. Jesus entered Jericho and made his way through town. There was a man there named Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector in the region and had become very rich. Got to pause there. Chief tax collector meant that he was the chief betrayer, as far as the Jews were concerned. And even more, he had become really rich off of uh, the money that he essentially was stealing from the Jews as the Romans' chief tax collector. So he was despised, and for good reason, in this culture. So he's the chief ta ta tax collector in the region. He'd become very rich. And he, tried to get a look, he was trying to get a look at Jesus, but he was too short to see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree beside the road, for Jesus was going to pass that way. When Jesus came by, he looked up at Zacchaeus and he called him by name. Zacchaeus, he said, quick, quick, come down. I must be a guest in your home today. Zacchaeus quickly climbed down and then took Jesus to his house in great excitement and joy. But the people were displeased. I, I bet if I looked this up, if I looked up the Greek word for displeased, it would be a quite a bit stronger translation. They were really pissed off. <laughs> yeah, the people were displeased. Gone to, the, to be the guest of a notorious sinner, they grumbled. And there might have been an adjective in front of notorious sinner, too, when they said this. Um, meanwhile, Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and said, I will give half my wealth to the poor, Lord. And if I've cheated people on their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. Jesus responded, salvation has come to this home today. For this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. 
for the Son of Man came to seek and save those who are lost. I just want to point out this, by the way. Think about it here at the end of the story, Jesus' response. Salvation has come to this home today. Who's he talking to? For this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. Who's he talking to? He's not really, he's talking to Zacchaeus, but he's actually talking to the crowd when he makes this proclamation. So Becky, what did you, what did you pick out here in this encounter with Jesus and Zacchaeus? What sticks out to you? So in today's environment, this could be either thing. This could be that Jesus was traveling around with a bunch of Christians who were mostly democratic. <laughs> and he came across a Proud Boys leader. Mm. Okay. Yeah. And he said to him, I'd like to come to your home. And then declared that this person was a man of God. It could also be that this Jesus was traveling with a bunch of Christians who are Republicans. And Jesus turned to a leader of Antifa and said, I'd like to come to your home. That's, that is really the situation that we're in. I think that as Christians, we want, to put our, we want to put it in one situation or another, but we can't see that actually it could be on both sides right now. Yeah, that's so good. I, I love the translation you made there because it was that shocking. We know it from the context. And it's interesting when we slow down, what does Jesus see in Zacchaeus? Well, he sees a man who has come just to get a glimpse of him. So Jesus is not uh, entering town and saying, hey, where does that notorious tax collector Zacchaeus live? Oh, there? He's not going over to Zacchaeus's house, knocking on the door and saying, I'm going to uh, uh, be a guest of your house today. No, he's, he's noticing that Zacchaeus is moving toward him. Zacchaeus is inviting Jesus. There's something going on in Zacchaeus that this reviled man would enter into the crowd and be right there on the side of the road where Jesus is coming just so he can get a glimpse of him. There is something Jesus knows that is going on in Zacchaeus's heart that is open, that is inviting. And so when, when Jesus tells him, I'm going to be a guest at your home today, um, it shocks Zacchaeus, but it also touches on something that is very tender for him. There's a reason he's standing there by the side of the road to see Jesus. And so he, he's so overcome with gratefulness about the way Jesus has responded to him that he, he just blorps out, I'll give half my wealth to the poor. And if I've cheated people on their taxes, I'll give them back four times as much. Obviously, this man has been racked also with guilt and with uh, conviction about the way he's lived his life. And somehow getting up in this tree is his way of saying, I'm ready for a change too. I'm open to you, Jesus. And Jesus, because he's paying attention, recognizes the invitation that Zacchaeus is offering him. And he takes it. And he takes it further than Zacchaeus thought he would. Coming to your home means I'm, I'm going to be, I'm going to act like your friend. Only friends come to be a guest in your home. I'm going to act like your friend today. So, but I, I think we have to take it back to the crowd, right? So because today we're actually talking about the crowd. Mm -hmm. And we tend to focus on Zacchaeus in this story. But today we need to talk about the crowd. And in the crowd, the only person who could see the heart of this man was Jesus. Mm -hmm. 
And right now, the only pe person who can see the heart behind any of these di divided areas, whether it's Democratic, Republican, Independent, whatever it is, the only, the only person who can see the true heart of anybody is our Savior Jesus. But he also gave us a tool. He gave us the Holy Spirit so that if we get in close relationship, we can experience the heart too. But we can't do it from afar. We can't do it without getting into people's homes. We can't do it without by just staying on the other side of social media and making our assumptions and judgments. The Holy Spirit works in direct relationship with people. Yeah, and yeah. I think right now we think that we're the judge of other people's hearts. And in this crowd, Jesus was the one who saw that Zacchaeus was different than the other tax collectors. I'm sure that this, this story isn't about all tax collectors, right? It's about one tax collector whose heart was different and he could see it, but the crowd couldn't because they were blinded by the assumptions they had laid upon who he was, yeah, right? That's so good. And, and really what you're talking about is um, adopting a, a conviction and an intentionality and a focus on the heart that, that uh, when, when Albert Brooks says that these kinds of contempt responses to people greatly soften when we're actually in front of someone, um, I've experienced that firsthand. My, my, I've said before in the podcast, my wife, Bev, um, one, of, one of the uh, ministry trajectories in her life is that for the last three years, she's been coming alongside a family of refugees <clears throat> from Syria that literally fled murder. Their entire neighborhood was mowed down by militia and they survived in their, in their safe room and they got out of Syria and, and they're refugees here trying to plant a new life in the United States. And they're, they're tremendously courageous and they've been through great trauma. Well, you can stand back and talk about the refugee situation um, as a cold policy issue, or you can get to know a refugee and understand their heart. And your policy issues will still be in your head as you are relating to a refugee, but it will be different because you'll, you'll be experiencing the heart of someone, not just what they represent. And the only way to treat people with contempt is to turn them into a symbol of something. So then the way to destroy the symbolism of a person is to get to know that person. They're, it is the best way. I said we're going to do three stories, but we're just going to do two. The, the second one was Jesus and Nicodemus, and similar environment in that uh, Here's a Pharisee, a religious leader, who uh, all of his buddies want to, want to uh, kill Jesus. They want to trap him and kill him. But this one religious leader, there's something different about him. He shows up at Jesus' home in the cover of darkness to talk to him. He's curious. He's, inv he's inviting. Something can happen in Nicodemus' life because he's not standing on the sidelines. He's inviting Jesus in, even though Jesus says some hard things to him when he does encounter him. But Let's move to the third story, and we'll close off with this one. This is Jesus and the Pharisees. Now, when we talk about Jesus encountering people, divisive people, there's nothing, there's, there's no group of people more divisive than the Pharisees. These are people that are trying to kill him. So let's leave this, read this little portion from Matthew 23, 1 through 16, and then we'll talk about this. So here we go. Matthew 23, I'm sorry, Matthew 23, 1 through 16. Here we go. 
Then Jesus said to the crowds and his, to his disciples, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees are the official interpreters of the law of Moses. So practice and obey whatever they tell you, but don't follow their example. But they don't practice what they teach. They crush people with unbearable religious demands and never lift a finger to ease the burden. Everything they do is for show. On their arms, they wear extra wide prayer boxes with scripture verses inside. And they wear robes with extra long tassels. And they love to sit at the head table at banquets and in the seats of honor in the synagogues. And they love to receive respectful greetings as they walk in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi. Well, don't let anyone call you rabbi. For you only have one teacher. And all of you are equal as brothers and sisters. So, and don't address anyone here on earth as father. For only God in heaven is your father. And don't let anyone call you teacher. For you only have one teacher, the Messiah. The greatest among you must be a servant. But those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. But sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the door, the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You won't go in yourselves, and you don't let others enter either. But sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cross the land and sea to make one convert, and then you turn that person into twice the child of hell that you yourselves are. Blind guides, what sorrow awaits you? For you say that it means nothing to swear by God's temple, but that is binding to swear, but, but, but that is binding to swear by the gold in the temple. And then he goes on and on. It's a whole chapter of this. So there we have a very different kind of encounter with um, uh, people that are creating division in the culture. And Jesus here is calling them out. And we're and so we're we're approaching this again through the lens of how is Jesus operating to bring about that the person's best good. And that's where this passage is challenging, isn't it? How is Jesus attempting to bring out the best good for these religious leaders and Pharisees? What, what do you pick out with this, Becky? Well, right now, I think that we need to remember that there are people who follow the heart of Jesus on both sides. They live on both sides and we have different viewpoints but that is not actually the concern of Jesus at all. He, he came into the world and lived in a more tumultuous time of division than we are in even right now, um, where violence for differing, differing opinion was worse than it is even today. And he didn't choose sides. He wasn't there to help us come to an agreement. <laughs> He's actually really never demonstrated any necessity for him to mitigate our disagreements. Many times when people would come to him with squabbles, this person did that and that person did this and we want you to settle it. He would often not settle it. He would go straight to the heart of what the issue was, which was about their true salvation and where they were pointing their attention. And he intentionally avoided and did not address the little squabbles that they often brought to him. And I, I know that the squabbles are not um, trite that we're dealing with right now. They aren't trite. There's life or death on, on either side for most of these issues. But at the same time, he loves people on both sides of these issues. And he's not going to come in and come back and settle our squabbles, even on this he's going to come straight to our hearts and he's going to ask us to, to remember what he called us to do here, which was to love our neighbor as ourselves. 
Yeah, and, and, and I, I think you could say on the heels of that too, that even in this encounter, um, what is he after here? He's, he's, he's trying to point out that people that uh, pretend or portend to represent God's heart and who clearly are not will be called out by him. Yeah. He, he will expose how their hearts are not reflective of the heart of God. That's why at the start of this, he says, you know, there's nothing wrong with these uh, teachers of religious law pointing out the law. So the, there's something true about the law. So, so pay attention to that. But the way that they practice the law is not expressive of the heart of God. It's actually the opposite of the heart of God. And that's a subtle thing to try to, uh, to, to uh, piece together there. And so he, he says these kind of uh, hyperbolic things to the teachers of religious law to point out the disparity between the heart that they are operating under and the heart of God. And he will expose and go after that when he sees that. Because in the end, the, the heart of God it, it, at the base level, and Arthur, the point of Arthur Brooks's book, uh, Love Your Enemies, is that he says later on in that, in that webinar as well, is that the foundation for all things is love, because God is love. And I just love it when he says that, because here Jesus is operating in love. He is trying to jolt these hypocritical religious leaders out of their self-righteous rut and bring them up perhaps to a point of humility, where, where like Zacchaeus, like Nicodemus, they start to invite the heart of Jesus into their lives instead of push it away. And in this case, the only way to do that is to jolt them out of their hypocrisy and expose them in front of the people. He, Jesus wants the people to know that the heart the Pharisees are representing is not the heart of God and that they need to look to him, their only true rabbi and teacher, to show them the true heart of God. Any other uh, last thoughts about this, this particular encounter, Becky? So the, the, the last things I want to say to you is that if you are in a situation where you're experiencing division because you have a different viewpoint than someone else that you care about in your life, I want you to, to know that you, you are expected to use your voice, that, the, that you don't have to feel like you have to be silent. But, after, but you should do it in a respectful and loving way. And after you've done that, you should just pursue Jesus from that point on. That going to prayer and letting him be the one who's in control and letting his Holy Spirit guide either your heart or their heart. You have to remember that you may be so dead set that you're the one who's right, but maybe actually the heart that needs to be worked on is yours. And maybe the heart that needs to be worked on is theirs. But he, he promises that if you go to him, he will work in your heart and their heart. And that unity could happen that way. So don't take to total control. But I also think you don't have, if, if God prompts you to speak, then you should feel free to speak. But after that, I really think we just have to continue to pursue his heart and allow his heart to change ours and also other people's. Yeah, and let, here's my closer. Let me, uh, let me shoot out a warning flare. Um, it is vitally important that you do not take the bait and uh, swallow what Satan is offering and develop contempt for other people. 
because the warning flare is Jesus says, when you do that, you're guilty of murder. We don't want to be on the wrong side of that. So, and we can easily get lured there because once again, Jesus called us sheep for a reason. We are easily led. But in this case, we need to be um, desperately, intentionally paying attention to the heart and voice of the good shepherd, not other shepherds or who portray themselves to be shepherds, not other voices that are circling the flock, just his. And if we, if we pay attention to just his voice and heart, it will root out the growing contempt we, we might feel towards others in this divisive culture. Our lives depend on this, by the way. Um, we cannot get stuck in a rut of murder. Um, it will all, not only destroy our relationships, it will destroy something in us. So it's, it's time to listen to the voice of Jesus in the midst of our difficult decisions and relationships and conversations. Um, we, we need to be listening to Jesus as we're listening to these voices in our culture at the same time and asking him as the good shepherd to guide us. All right, gang, thanks for listening. Um, next week, we'll have a second episode in this series on present concerns. Who knows what it'll be next week? Um, but all of these are going to be interesting like this because they hit home, don't they? Well, gang, uh, if you wanna uh, click on any of the links that we've provided for the, like for instance, this Trinity Forum interview that, uh, that we listened to, or anything else that we've talked about today, uh, just head on over to paintridiculousattentiontojesus.com. Let me say that again, paintridiculousattentiontojesus.com. And uh, you're gonna look for season five, episode 35, and that's where you'll find these links. And don't forget to head on over also to jesuscenteredaily.com and get your free sample of my new devotional or watch my um, intentionally amateurish video or to order your copy, it comes out next Tuesday. Um, and uh, uh, remember, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus is a podcast from ricklawrence.com. At least for now, <laughs> you can subscribe on Google Play or iTunes. And thank you, Becky Nader, for joining us this time. And we'll talk again next time. Bye.